How's everyone doing tonight? Good, good. Thank you, Alex. Lord bless you. He's going to school. All right, man. To you, talk to you soon. Isn't that great? He comes here and leads worship and then goes to school. All right. We're continuing through the book of Romans. We're in chapter 12. Let's pray once again before we get started. Father, this evening we are grateful. We are grateful for you and all you mean to us and all that you are in our lives, Father. And as we spend time and look at these passages in this book, Lord, we pray that we would have understanding of what Paul was trying to say, Lord, understanding of what you were ministering to Paul And Lord, what you are ministering through Paul to us today. Father, may our hearts be open. May we be receptive. May we lean in with understanding and anticipation to hear your voice. And may we hear you speak tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Romans, from the very beginning, chapter 1 through chapter 11, has been this hike up a hill. It's been this ascent trying to get to this place of understanding. And what Paul has been trying to convey is the renewal of the human race, the renewal of Israel, church living as the renewed humanity, as that renewed Israel. And He's had to put into our understanding the position of creation and God's establishing, God's covenant faithfulness, that term that we've used throughout this, how God himself made himself available to a man, Abraham, and through this man gave a promise that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And he has taken us on the journey to say that God kept his word. He is fulfilling that, but he is fulfilling that through the faithful Israelite Jesus. And now those who believe in Christ have become this renewed Israel. They're not taking the place of Israel They are taking the place of what Israel's destiny was supposed to be. We ended last time talking about he was trying to provoke the Jews to jealousy, trying to let them see the party is happening. You were meant to be there. You're not there, but you can be. Anytime you want to be a part of this party, you can join in. It's meant for you. And he was telling those Gentiles who most likely were proselytes who, who've come to faith and now saying, well, this is our church now. The Jews, you know, are no longer a part of this, letting them know, no, they are always welcome. They can always come in. The door is open. You never are going to stop this synagogue evangelism. It's always meant for them. But through this journey, he has been helping us to see that God used the nation of Israel for a purpose, that They were to illuminate, to magnify sin so that the whole world could see what sin was and then see how God dealt with sin through Jesus. And we talked about them being the bomb squad, so to speak. Their job was to take that bomb out of the city and then Christ was going to detonate it there on Calvary and deal with it but they were not wanting to let go. They were wanting to hold on to their ethnic responsibility, saying we are God's chosen people. We are the ones that remember they are living in exile. That meant that they could not be the fulfillment while they were in exile. So their minds would say, we need to get out of this Roman rule. We need to be back on top so no one is ruling over us so that we now can be God's people and rule with God over the earth. And God says, no, that's not how it's working. It's working this way through Jesus. So that's been the the climb that we've been on. And now chapter 12 is kind of the descent. We finally get to ah, exhale and start to kind of 
cruise downhill. There's no more of the, the kind of question, bait, question, bait, and then answer that he's been doing. Now he actually starts to deal with some of the characteristics that are supposed to be a part of this renewed humanity. And what we see, we start seeing a reversal of what we saw actually in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, where the mind and the heart and the body had become corrupted and that the human race had fallen and was just disintegrating because of the weight of sin. Here in this section, we see from actually chapters 9 through 16, is how God in Christ and by the Spirit is putting back together again this new humanity, the reversal of Adam's sin. And he's getting right what God has intended for his people to be, the people of God. And so that's where we start to pick up. And so in in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. As we hear the word, therefore, we need to think now what he's doing, now that it is clear that we know who the people of God are, now that it is clear that you are, that God has satisfied that covenant faithfulness, now that we understand his faithfulness to his promise, and that God has now put you and his whole new humanity on mission in light of this knowledge therefore he says i urge you brothers and sisters in view of god's mercy and so he gives us this picture of god's mercy okay now that it's clear who we are what our mission is he gives us the idea that in view of god's mercy in view of looking back from chapters 9 through 11 we see that mercy really was underneath it all. And so looking back in view of this mercy, that we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Now the word bodies there, it's not just your physical body. In Pauline theology, the body that he's talking about here, more probably clearly would be translated your person. And so a person is, yeah, the physical being, but it is more than that. It includes all of who they are. It's not just the physical, it includes that. And so it's important that we see that we have to allow the whole of who we are in light of the mercy that God has given, this is what we offer as living sacrifices, holy pleasing to God. You know, in the first century when Paul was writing this, in both the pagan and Jewish world, the idea of going to God without a sacrifice was unheard of. The pagans, the Jews, offered sacrifice. Here come these Christians, and they are no longer offering animal sacrifices to God. And it was like, what is this? This isn't what things or how things are. It was a very strange concept in that century not to present animals to sacrifice to their gods. Instead, what he's asking them to do is you be that sacrifice. Your whole person. Now, we've seen that he's dealing with this idea of a person. Throughout the epistle, he's talked about the flesh, That's different than what the word is here for body. When he's talked about the word, the flesh, he's meant it as the negative, the fallen, the rebellious Israel. Israel according to just their ethnic heritage, but not according to the promise. But here he's talking about something different. And that's why he would say in Corinthians, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But the body 
can. The new body will. And so there's a difference that's taking place here. There's a change from the person who has fallen to now our person who is redeemed being offered to God and God is going to transform this mortality into the immortality. This corruption has to put on the incorruption. And he's talking about our person, not just our flesh, our whole being. So the body offering is the total of that person, totally himself, totally herself. This is the true spiritual worship. Remember in chapter one, the Adamic humanity, even though it knew God, did not honor or worship him as God. Humanity no longer reflected the image of God, who he was. And so if you worship what is not God, then you ended up reflecting whatever it was you worshipped. And so they worshipped the creature rather than the creator, which included themselves. And they gave in to those appetites. The whole point was they were seeing less, they were being less. And here our true worship, proper worship, is offering ourselves completely to God, establishing ourselves in that place where the offering would be dedicated to God. God, take this offering. It's now I am dedicating my life to God. God, take me. And and it's amazing that we stand back here, and this is the norm in our faith, you know, and in most religions now. There, There are very few religious systems that offer animal sacrifices, And this is where it began, where we see that God all along was painting a picture where that sacrifice was always meant to be us. And it came to the climax of Christ on the cross. The ultimate picture of what that sacrifice looked like, and now we are to look like that as well. And so God has changed the form of worship and he wants it to be this true, proper form of worship, bringing us into that place. Remember in John chapter four with Jesus and the woman at the well, and he said, the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth, for that's who God seeks for those to worship him. They're saying, well, should we worship here? Should we offer this? Well, this is where God is taking this. And that's what Paul's talking about here. This true, proper worship is you as a human being offer your whole person, body, soul, spirit to the Lord. And then he's telling us, do not conform to the pattern of this world. I love J.B. Phillips' translation in this. It says, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. Be transform. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The mind was darkened because mankind was not worshiping God, and then the whole body was corrupted and put to wrong use. He talked about that in the beginning of the book. So now we are to discern. We are to discern that we have understanding and we are to do, we are to prove And that's what he's talking about there where he says, by renewing your mind, then you will be able to test, discern, see what is right and approve and to do what is God's will, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Now, those those aren't three different types of God's will, okay? What God's will is, his will is good, his will is pleasing, his will is perfect. People go, well, there's God's permissive will and there's God's perfect will. And it's like, what, what does that mean? And God isn't saying, well, this is my perfect will. This is my permissive will. No, we are to offer ourselves to God. That's his good. That's his pleasing. That's his perfect will. It's not like, well, should I be a fireman or should I be a policeman? Which one's God's perfect will? Oh, I chose a fireman. Maybe that was his permissible. Scripture knows nothing like that. Okay, it doesn't talk about that kind of thing. Well, God's going to permit that. No matter where you are, you can... Do what is good and pleasing in the perfect will of God, wherever you're at. I can't now because I married her. So, you know, that was God's permissive will. You know, God's perfect will would have been if I, you know, 
where do you go with that? I go to the couch, right? I mean, I just that would be where you would get in trouble because how do you say something like that? By what do you bring that criteria? And so when he talks about God's perfect will, this is all-encompassing. It's God's will. And what is God's will that we would offer ourselves as this living sacrifice, that we would not be conformed to the way and patterns of this world. Now, what was the pattern of the world that Paul was dealing with here specifically? With, I mean, because we can't ignore what he's just said through the last 11 chapters. That's what he's building on. Okay, Conformity to this world's pattern was the division that was taking place between the Jew and the Gentile. It was that tension that was there. Don't be conformed to that tension. Don't give in to the pressure of those Jews who are insisting that you come to their faith. Don't give in to the pressure to those Gentiles who say the Jews are no longer important. God is done with them and is not going to you know, work in their lives or synagogues anymore. Don't give in to that pressure. Don't conform to that, but renew the way you think. What's the new way we think? This new humanity, God is raising up a humanity that is there to honor him. This renewed Israel. Conform to that. Change how you've been thinking. Start thinking differently so that you can accomplish God's good, pleasing, perfect will, which is to reach all people. And that's very much at the heart of what Paul is trying to address here. God's will is about reaching out. God designed humanity to be in charge of the world. Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We talked about that a little bit this last Sunday. So this Christian ethic or behavior is anticipation of the rule in the future. Okay, we are given this task where we are to be these people, but you have a place that you begin. The place where we begin rule is where? We just read it. It's not a trick question. Who do we rule over? Ourselves. Okay? You begin here. You begin with yourself. God is calling us to rule. We've seen that throughout this book. We saw that in Genesis. That was man's purpose, was to have this dominion over creation. Where do we begin this dominion? You begin it in your own life. And if each of us begins to become who we are supposed to be, if the dominion of God's creations takes place in our hearts, then it starts to spread And we start to see it accomplish what God has intended it to do, which is to reach the world. So don't be conformed. Don't be squeezed into this pattern of arguing and bickering and claiming authority and being proudful. He's going to talk about that later. Instead, renew your mind. Change the way you think, how you've been thinking, so that you're able to both test and approve what God's will is. In other words, you will be able to accomplish this task that is yours, which is to have the dominion over the world, not to be great rulers, but to be custodians, to care for it, to bring God's love to it. Okay? That's the whole idea. And so this is that renewing of our mind is connected to this relational aspect and who we first rule is ourselves. That's where the dominion begins. It begins with us. Are there any questions on these two verses? Any thoughts? You leaned forward. Did you have a question? No? Okay. All right. No? All right. Well, let's read down verses 3 to 8. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought but rather think yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Have you ever connected that verse to the first two? 
because it is. You're not to be conformed. You're to renew the way you think so you can accomplish God's perfect, pleasing will. And then he says, don't think of yourself more highly than you should, but think soberly about yourself. Sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. What has he been talking about this whole time? The Jews feeling their privilege, the Gentiles saying then the Jews are out, this competition between each other. And Paul says, don't think too much about yourself. Because that's what they were doing. And you know what? That's what we do still. We do. It's automatic. You know, I'll hear of something that's taking place at another church. And I think, we don't do that. Well, I think, yeah, we've got it pretty good. Now, I like the way we do things, but don't think too much about yourself. You see, if you're thinking higher of yourself than you ought, then your judgment isn't going to be true. And you're not really renewing the way you're thinking. You've gone back into that pattern where now you're judging based on who you are, based on what you do have. Sober judgment. Think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. We are all part of this one body. The faith God has given, he has given to the Jews who now follow Christ. He has given to the Gentiles who may have proselytized and now have come to Christ. And he's given to the Gentiles who are now believers. This is our faith. And God has given us all this faith. So think with sober judgment. Don't think of yourself so high. God is the one who has given every one of these people this faith. And so we start seeing how it's connected to this whole therefore, in light of all the tension, the things, what God has done, present yourself as the sacrifice, holy, pleasing to God. It's your true worship. And don't be conformed into that way of thinking, again, separating us versus them. But instead, renew your mind. Bring this under this new way of thinking so that you can accomplish what God's will is, which is reaching everybody. Don't think of yourselves higher than you should. But instead, think of yourself with sober judgment. The right way, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Verse 4, for just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not have all the same function, so we in Christ, we though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. And so we see that Paul is giving us this understanding that we are to have this sober judgment. It's in recognition of this new humanity, this new Israel that encompasses all of us, the Jew, the Gentile, the entire populace who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. You are now part of this body. From one body and each member belongs to all the others. And so we see that we belong to all the others. And Paul uses this example of the body over and over again. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Colossians, Ephesians, all these times that he gives this understanding of what the body is supposed to be. Again, this new humanity. And it once again brings the importance of seeing ourselves in sober judgment. Thinking of ourselves as needing others, thinking of ourselves as being a part of something bigger. And as he goes on and he lifts these different gifts, again, you see, I don't think God cares 
what you do as much as how you do what you do. And as he lists out these gifts, you have different gifts. If it's prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, do it generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. So it's not just the serving, it's not just the giving, it's not just the mercy, it's not just the teaching, it's not just the prophesying or declaring. Whatever it is, you have a means to do it and you have a responsibility to do it well. What can you do well in this body that is called the church? What can you do well? And are you doing it? And if you're not doing it, ask yourself, why not? And what would it take for you to make that step? Because here's the problem that we have in the church, I think, today. We have a problem that the members of the body no longer feel the freedom to act responsibly to the gifts that God has put with them because they feel they need permission. I can't do that because there's not a ministry. You know, I want to do interpretive dance just because that's what I thought. But our church doesn't have interpretive dance. Does that mean you can't do interpretive dance? Maybe you can't do it at this place at this time, or maybe you can develop it in this place. Remember when we talked about our core beliefs, one of the core beliefs was structure must always submit to spirit, and the way God's spirit works is through his people. And so if God puts something on your heart and says, I really would like to see this take place. If you don't talk to someone about it, it's your fault. Now, if you talk to someone about it and they say, well, there's no place for it here, it's still your fault because you should do it somewhere. Maybe you can't do it there. Maybe you have to remove yourself from that place and put yourself in a place where you can do it if they are unwilling to allow your gifts to be used. Or maybe you need to get some people on board and present the vision. Because maybe the idea of interpret dance is great, but we need dancers, right? Because no one likes watching interpretive dance with people who can't dance. I don't. I've seen it. It's like, oh man, they shouldn't be doing this. But I've seen it done well. And I think, oh, then I like, I wish I could do that, but I can't. And so whatever it is, oh, I want to see this ministry take place. I mean, you guys know the reason we are in Haiti is because Haiti was in the heart of Denise Gideon. Denise said, hey, what do you think about going to Haiti? I said, I haven't thought about going to Haiti. Well, would you like to? Sure, I'll go to Haiti. She's the one who brought us as a body into Haiti. And I don't know how many people we've had now go to Haiti. And we're building a cafeteria. Why? Because it was on her heart. Whatever you do, do it well. Do it diligently. Do it fervently. God has given us gifts. We are to utilize them. And they are not limited by me. They are not limited by the leadership. Oh, if you're going to involve people, there has to be structure. There has to be organization. But if something doesn't happen and you don't talk to us about it, it's your fault it's not happening. And if you have the desire to do something, then you need to know what it is you have the desire to do and don't depend on me for you to do it. I want to do this. Okay, what are your thoughts? What are your plans? I have none. Well, come back to me when you do. I, I can maybe give you a couple ideas. Well, what about this? How does that sound? 
But you see, it's your vision. It's not mine. It's your heart. It's your gift. If you're going to show mercy, do it cheerfully. I want to show mercy to someone. Okay, do it and do it cheerfully. If you're going to give, hey, I want to give. All right, be generous. Do it generously. And God is the one who has put us in these places to accomplish these things. It's real important that we allow each other to function and give the freedom to act as God would have us to. Let us all be who we're supposed to be for the health of the whole. Because that's our purpose. And again, this is all part about not conforming. This is about offering ourselves sacrifices, living sacrifices, holy, pleasing to the Lord. It's our reasonable form of worship. This is how we're worshiping God, is by taking part in his work in the ways that we can. That's living sacrifices, giving, merciful, judging, teaching, judging, teaching. Um, all these things are there as part of this living sacrifice. This is our reasonable form of worship. He's playing it out, showing us what it looks like so that we can do this functionally as a whole. Are there any questions on this portion? Any thoughts on these verses? Nada? Okay. We'll go on then. Verse 9. Love must be sincere. Period. I love that. It's not to be hypocritical. Behavior that would have been approved by both the pagans and the Jews are kind of listed here. These are basic things that both Jews and the pagans would have seen and recognized. The behavior of this new humanity that we're going to talk about right now never slaps humanity in the face. This behavior that is supposed to be ours as followers of Christ, it's a moral code that benefits humanity as a whole. They must transcend them, but they also are to include them. And so God is giving us this structure of what to do that is to benefit everybody. And so if you have a faith that doesn't benefit all of humanity, but actually demeans or hurts part of humanity, then something is wrong with that faith. If you have a faith that is going to, you know, kill people for your cause, something is wrong with that faith that's using others to step on them to elevate yourself. This faith benefits everybody. And this list that he's going to go through is one that does benefit all of humanity. It's basic in relationship to all of humanity, but it actually transcends that. So he starts off, love must be sincere. It's not to be hypocritical. Then he says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. There's not just a negative response, but there is a positive action. You're not just to hate what is wrong, but you're also to hold on to what is good. In fact, you show what is wrong by doing what is good. That's what illuminates and, and transcends this understanding. If I am being a good example, it's more clear what the bad example is. You know, if you're at work and you get a lot done and all your coworkers get half as much done, your good work shows that their work isn't that good. And so it's not just hate evil. You hate evil, but you cling to what is good. And what is evil? What are the things that he's talking about here, the evil? You know, it has to do, again, a lot with the hypocrisy that has taken place, the, the puffing up, the pride, the arrogance. It's a lot of what he has been talking about. It's probably a lot of what he's focusing on. We're going to see a lot of these things that he's dealing with are very relational. So it's not just hate, you know, murder or hate, you know, adultery or hate 
you know, fill in the blanks. It has to do really with hate those things that are destroying this new humanity that God is trying to establish. Hate those things that are tearing down what God is wanting to build up. And that's why we hate those things, but we cling to what is good. There is, again, a positive response. It's not enough to hate what's wrong if you don't love what's right. You have to move out of just the negative and into the positive. It's kind of what we talked about Sunday. Remember, it's not enough to say, yeah, this is a bad habit I've got. No, you have to change and move into the place that God has given you to be. You have to take the right actions to deal with the wrong behavior. And so you're to hate what is evil, cling with what is good. And then he goes on to that after that. Be devoted to one another in love. Again, be devoted to one another. You Jews are to be devoted to those Gentiles. You Gentiles are to be devoted to those Jews. Be devoted to one another in love. And so you're supposed to care for one another. He goes on and he says, honor one another above yourselves. Again, see how relational this is? Why is he talking about this? Because of the tension that was there, especially between the Jews and the Gentiles. So what tension do we have? Where is there tension in those who are followers of Christ? Is it into the different churches? I know I have tension with some people who call themselves Christian and the way they do things. And I have to honor them as more important than myself. That's tension. That's hard. It doesn't mean I, I can't disagree with them. It doesn't mean that I don't have problems with the, what they say or the things that what they do. But I do need to still show them honor. What honor are we showing them? You see, they are part of the same humanity that we're part of. The faith has been given to them just like it's been given to me. Let's face it, this church is vast. It is all-encompassing throughout humanity. There's only one church. And so I need to love them. I need to show devotion to them. How would I devote myself to them? By praying for them? By dialoguing with them instead of dialoguing about them? See, the biggest problem I have with people who I know have disagreements with me, I don't care that they disagree with me. I really don't. That doesn't bother me. What bothers me is when they talk about me, but they never talk to me. When I hear, well, I heard you were this. Well, where'd you hear that from? Oh, from Pastor So-and-so. Pastor So-and-so never talked to me. You see, and woe to me if I do the same thing. If I talk about them, but I won't talk to them. See, if I do that, then I'm not devoted to them in love and I'm not honoring them as being above me. Verse 11, he says, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be zealous in spiritual fervor fervor and serving the Lord. Take hold of the time and make the most of the opportunities you have. Oh, being zealous. How do you manufacture zeal? Right? Have you ever just, man, I want to sit down just thinking about it. You know, have you ever just been worn out and you just feel like I've got nothing left? God, I've been serving you, but I'm tired. And, and, you know, how much more do I have to give before I see some fruit from this? Before I see some positive, by, before I, I get something that energizes me. And he says, never be lacking in zeal. What if I don't feel like it? Never be lacking in zeal. See, you can be zealous and not feel zealous. 
you can still be fervent even though you don't feel like it. You have to do it in work, right? They expect you to perform and get your job done. I don't care if you don't feel like getting your job done. I just don't feel like it today. I don't want to bake any more cookies or, you know, I don't want to put any more widgets on the shelf. I'm just not feeling it today. We're not paying you to feel it. We're paying you to put the widgets on the shelf. We're paying you to bake the cupcakes. We're paying you to sort the lumber. We're paying you to do the construction, to do your job. You're supposed to get it done whether you feel like it or not, and you're supposed to do a good job whether you feel like it or not. Then we come into the spiritual world. I don't do anything unless I feel like it. Don't lack zeal. Even when you don't feel zealous. You still have a job to do to perform. You still have responsibility to the body that you belong to. You can't give up just because how you feel. And that zeal, it says, keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. And that's how you keep it, by serving the Lord. You keep doing what you're supposed to do. What revives us is doing something that we love. Right? You could be exhausted. Right now you're just, man, I'm so tired. Come to church. But if I say, hey, you guys want to go get some pie afterwards? Man, ping. Want to get some pie? Hey, yeah, hey, go get coffee and pie, and all of a sudden, I'm alive, and I'm ready, and let's eat, and let's do this, or whatever it is. I mean, it's like you have that enthusiasm. Why? Because you want pie. I see that hand. Serving the Lord, is that something you'd love to do? Is that something you want to do? Because that's the idea here. Keep that zeal, that spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Don't let that draw. And if it is, why? What's going on, God? You know, there, there, I have to do this continually. There, there are some Sunday mornings that I don't feel it. I come Sunday morning and I'm just like, oh, God, what's going to happen? You know, is, is anyone going to show up? And man, you know, we, we arrive late at our place you know and it'll be 10 o'clock and i'm like oh god is this over are we done is genesis history you know is it just the 10 of us that and that's it that's all going to be and then you know as time comes and more people start to walk in it's like oh okay i guess we we still have a place you know we still have people we still have a church you guys have no idea what that does to me you know 15 minutes i'm like oh genesis is over and then there's 100 people hey we're still alive you know it's like oh good my my fervor has increased you know i i have i have this emotional problem that i have to deal with and i have to be consistent it doesn't matter I have to do what I do because this is what God has for me to do. And I have to continue to be zealous. What if Saturday is like, no one's going to come Sunday. I'm not going to really think about what I'm going to say. I'll just wing it. You know, I'm just going to get through it. And if I were to be honest with you, which means I, I am, there are times where those kinds of thoughts on a Saturday night when it's late and I'm tired and I think, does anyone really care? Do I really have to do what I'm going to do or it doesn't really matter? That would play very much on if I'm zealous or not. Those kinds of thoughts. Why should I put the time in if no one's going to show up, if no one cares, if no one's going to contribute to the work that God is doing? Why do I want to be a part of the work if no one else is? And then, if I'm not going to be zealous, someone comes for the first time that Sunday and says, yeah, that guy wasn't very zealous. That guy really didn't care about what he said. It then affects others. You see, I have to be zealous, not for my sake, but for the whole, for the body. I have to be fervent spiritually for everybody, serving the Lord. Why? Because we serve the Lord for each other. We're part of this body. Verse 12, be joyful in hope. Hope is always future. It's a future tense. 
And I think we as followers of Christ should have this confident joy. Why? Because everything is going well? Because things are hunky-dory? It's not that the circumstances are great, but because our God will never stop working on behalf of those he loves. And if we are not joyful, it means we don't believe that to be true. And what's happened is we've given in to the circumstances and we've lost sight of the future, which is our God working. And so we are to be joyful in not what we see, not what we have, but what we believe in our hope. And so the idea of joy and hope is be joyful for what you don't have now, but what you believe God is still doing in the future. That's also faith, by the way. And so put your circumstances, the ones that are stealing joy, out of your life on, on the, the chopping block here. Let's, let's talk about that. Maybe it's your family, your kids. Oh, man, they're taking my joy away. So you don't have hope for them? No, oh, I, I believe God can do something in their lives, but they're just not letting God do. Do you think God's going to stop working or stop trying to reach or stop loving them? Well, no. Isn't that a wonderful thing that God is going to love your kids long after you've had enough and given up? Isn't it great to know that God is going to continue working in your life even though your body is failing, your mind is giving out, and you're struggling with this, that, or the other thing? Isn't it wonderful to know that God is never going to stop working in you, in those that he loves that he will constantly doing that. Can you have joy over that? Because you should. And if you don't, it means you don't see God clear enough. And so we are to have this kind of hope, joyful in hope. Remember, hope is always the future. It's always a future tense. See, I'm, I'm not going to get stronger Oh, I might a little bit, but I mean, as years go by, it's written on the wall, right? It's like, okay, I'm going to get older. The knees are going to get weaker. Mine's going to get a little duller. My hope isn't in that future. My hope is in God working in my life no matter, even though that's the future, because there's a future even beyond that. Life doesn't end when I die. My life goes on. So hope is future. Patient in affliction. You know, suffering colors our lives. It colors how we feel. It cover, colors how we think. Suffering that you go through will color your life. But you can choose the colors. You can choose the colors so that you're patient in affliction. Or as James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith is, is producing perseverance. Suffering is going to color your life. What colors are you going to let it? It's going to be all dark gray and black. No, my colors are going to be bright. Why? Because... I'm going to be patient in affliction. Why, why would I be patient in affliction? Because I'm expecting something else to come from it. Expecting something long-lasting to come from it. Something persevering either in me or in whoever else is involved with it. But something is taking place. Why? Because I have hope. God in the future. Faithful in prayer. Prayer is the evidence of our faith. Prayer is the evidence of who we really are in our faith. When we stop praying, it shows where we really are in this relationship with God. And perseverance in prayer is something that 
keeps us connected to the hope, keeps us connected to the promises of God and his presence, keeps us in that place where we are hearing from God and he's able to speak to us. That faithfulness in that relationship is a very important thing. And so Paul lists it here, faithfulness and prayer. Again, it's evidence of where we really are. If you don't pray, it, it really shows how much you trust, how much you think God is going to work. Faithfulness and prayer. And, you know, the prayer, it doesn't say prayer for a specific thing. It just says faithfulness in prayer. Now, all these things are helping us to see maybe a little bit of idea of what Paul is talking about, but it's a general thing. Faithful in prayer. Are you faithful? You know, and these things, if you find yourself being convicted, you know, like, ah, oh, man, I'm not, I'm not as faithful in prayer as I should be, and I'm not very joyful in hope. In fact, I've been kind of a, a Debbie Downer lately, and just, you know, I'm not patient in affliction at all. When I'm afflicted, I'm angry. I'm not patient. You know, when these things happen, if these things are hitting you, good. They're meant to. Really. They're meant to strike a chord with us as those followers. Remember, we are the fabric God is building in the new humanity from. This is what we're supposed to look like. These are the qualities of this new people of God. Share, verse 13, with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. Okay, we are to be people who care about others. We are to be people who are caring about the needs of not just ourselves but those around us. Caring for others is the mark of God's presence in our lives because that's how God cares. That's how God loves. Remember, we are part of this body. And that's why he says share with the Lord's people who are in need. It doesn't mean you don't share with those who aren't the Lord's people, but he's talking about this new humanity here. This whole point is talking about who God is raising up in this aspect. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. That's hard. That really is hard. When someone persecutes you, you want to curse them. And it's, cursing isn't like swearing, okay? It's not like saying a cuss word. The idea of cursing is bringing judgment on them. I want to see them judged. When someone who has brought this kind of persecution on me goes through a hardship, do I say, oh boy, good, it's about time you got yours. That's what you get for messing with me. That's, is that okay? Is that a blessing? Or am I basically cursing that person? And then he says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. And you see, we're supposed to live in this community where we matter to each other. When you hurt, I hurt. When you're doing good, I'm doing good. I can rejoice with you. I think the hardest thing sometimes is rejoicing when something good happens to someone. It's amazing how, how hurt we get. Why did they get that? Why didn't God give that to me? Why did they get the promotion at work? I, I've been here longer and I'm upset because you did well. And it just shows that I'm more focused on me than I am on them. Why are they doing? Why did they get an A on the test and I only got a C? That's not fair. I studied harder than them. Probably don't really want to know the answer to that one, but we do that. We're to rejoice when people rejoice. We're to join in with that joy. And if you get jealous when something good happens to someone else, Think about what is happening inside of you. Why are you not able to rejoice with them? It's selfish. It's thinking of yourself in a way that's not very sober. It's not showing sober judgment. It's thinking yourself more highly than you should. It's not recognizing you're part of the whole. And then mourning with those who mourn. I don't want to get bummed out. Man, that's a drag that happened to you, but hey, I'm having a good day. I don't want to talk about it. We're supposed to enter into the sufferings of those around it. I'm sure thankful for the people who've done that with me. 
When I go through something, I'm glad there are people who come alongside of me and help me in my time of suffering. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Idea of harmony is a beautiful word, right? It's where you complement. Where they're living, you come alongside, and now your life and their life work together for a better. Love harmonies. I love that, you know, third right above the melody. Ah, oh, it sounds great. What does it do? It complements that melody. Is your life complementing those around you? Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low positions. Do not be conceited. And that's what it is. If you're not willing to associate with people of low position, it means you're conceited. It means you're proud. You're too good for them. You don't want to deal with them. That's going to interfere with your life. That's pride. Okay, low positions again, especially in Paul's time, there was extreme, there were slaves, there were owners. I mean, you had this gamut that was taking place. He's saying, hey, there should be no status in these areas. So it doesn't mean you don't want to hang out with someone who stinks. Okay, you got a homeless person and they stink. It doesn't mean that that smell doesn't bother you. But it does mean that you shouldn't look at that person lower. Yeah, you cannot want to, okay, let's go, you know, hang out every day because you stink. No, be friends with them, get them to shower if you can and, and help them out of that situation, okay? But the whole idea is the status. There should not be any statuses here in this body, this new humanity. Verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Whoa. In the eyes of everyone. How do you do that? Well, he tells us, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You cannot please everyone. You cannot. Jesus could not please everyone. The Pharisees said he was a drunk, wine bibber and hang it out hung out with sinners okay he didn't please them you cannot please everyone paul is not saying you have to please everybody but as much as it is possible as far as it depends on you live at peace with everyone as much as you can don't repay evil for evil but do what is right in the eyes of everyone. No one should be able to look at you and say, you know what, that person is doing wrong. They might disagree with what you're doing. They did with Jesus. They said it was wrong that he was hanging out with the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the other people of low, you know, just moral character. They said he was wrong, but they could not pin the wrong on him. He wasn't the drunkard. He wasn't the one giving in to that type of living. They didn't like what he was doing, but he wasn't participating in it. So don't do things that people could say are wrong. Live what is right. They still are going to disagree, but as much as possible, as much as depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That means you have the responsibility of how you conduct yourself with others. Because I know myself, I can instigate a fight or I can bring it down. I can carry it on or I can diffuse it. I'm good at arguing. I used to take pride in how good I was. I used to look for the debate. Learned it from my mom, who's shaking her head at me. I was good at it. I enjoyed it. I took it as a challenge. I wanted to debate. As much as depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, verse 19, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him some to drink. In doing this, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but come 
overcome evil with good. And so Paul starts this last portion, this downhill with this idea of who we are as the people of God are supposed to be. What does this new humanity, this renewed Israel look like? This is what it looks like. And it's very contrary to what was taking place at Paul's time, and it's very contrary to what is taking place in God's people at this time. It's amazing the conflict that takes place within those who are followers of Christ. It's amazing. I don't have any people outside the faith coming to me and criticizing the things I do. I have a lot of other people who are inside the church who comment and criticize how and what I do. It happens. It happens on Facebook all the time. If I post something on Facebook that I I thought or that I did, I'll get all kinds of comments from those who are in the church. Make sure you do this, brother. Hey, brother, are you conforming to this? I have a comment about, you know, uh, Duck Dynasty. No one who is not a Christian comments on my comment on just, you know, something like that. No, it's only those who are in the church who have their say-so because they have no problem voicing their opinion. And I wonder, are they trying to build up? Are they trying to edify? Are they thinking of me more important than themselves? Am I thinking of them more important than I am myself? But we are quick to criticize in the church. The church is the most critical place in the world right now. Well, I shouldn't say that. I don't know every place in the world, but in my world. If I want criticism, I look to the church. They will criticize what kind of music you listen to, what kind of TV shows you watch, the people you associate with, what kind of Bible you use. If you use the New International, if you use the New King James, if you use the English Standard, they will criticize so many things. How you teach, what you teach. What's going on? Okay? We're not to look like that. This is what we are to look like. This is the new humanity. These are the characteristics of us who are now part of this renewed Israel. These who are followers of Jesus Christ are not to repay evil to evil. We're not to do what's wrong in other people's eyes. If possible, live at peace. Don't show revenge. Leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, I will avenge. What does that mean? It means give room for God to deal with them. Don't judge them before God's done with them. All these things. Don't be proud. Be willing to associate with people in low estates. Live at harmony with one another. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. I'm going backwards. Bless those who persecute. Bless do not curse. Share the Lord's people, those who are in need. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Never be lacking zeal. Keep spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be devoted one to another. Love, honor one another above yourselves. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. What's evil? Not doing all these things. Cling to what is good. What is good? Doing all these things. And that's Paul's start for this new humanity where he's taking us to as he closes this letter. Any questions just on what we talked about? No. Eileen? Um... You know, what I have heard and read is not so much that it's um, causing a problem for them, but it was actually something that was done to uh, the heaping coals on their head was bringing something to them, same as giving them something to drink. It was bringing something that was of value to them. And so that it was by doing this, you are actually bringing a benefit to them. That's kind of the context that I believe it's in. So it's not like you're going to do something that's going to then burn them and they're going to say, ah, you know, by burning coals on his head, it really has more to do just kind of with that idea of blessing to their life. So that's kind of what I've heard. Any other thoughts or questions? No? Okay, let's pray. Father, we do again thank you for your goodness We thank you that you have
called us to live out this life of goodness to others for your sake, for the sake of the whole and not just ourselves. And Lord, this is what it looks like to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed. This is what renewing our mind looks like. This is how we worship. This is how we prove what your will is by living this way. And so, God, I pray that you would keep this in the forefront of our minds, that you would help us to remember not only these things, but to recognize when we are failing in them. Lord, when we would rejoice at someone's problems, convict us. When we would be impatient in our affliction, remind us. When we are not faithful in praying, may we remember that this is what we are supposed to do. God, if we are not joyful in hope, if our lives are lacking joy, Lord, may we recognize that it begins with what we are hoping in. May we renew that fervor for serving you. May we not lose the zeal in living for you. God, the these things are so important to mark our lives that we'd be identified with them. And so may we not neglect these things. May they take root in our lives and our hearts. And we do thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.